surgeon said the following, Gratitude is weak when favors are undervalued. Gratitude is weak when favors are undervalued. He serves little who loves little. And he loves little who has no sense of having been greatly loved. Let your thoughts of Christ be high, and your delight in him will be high too. This is our desire this morning as we open the scriptures on this Easter Sunday. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 18, and actually we may read verse 19 as well. For those of you who are visiting us this morning, perhaps it's your first time with us at this Easter celebration, we have met on Thursday night and Friday night, and this weekend the theme for our Easter service has been Easter in the book of Revelation or Easter in the Apocalypse. We'd like this morning to reflect on how heaven thinks about Easter. Let's read the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So it shall be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I, John, 
was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the seven lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white, were white like wool and white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of a rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and hates. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will soon take place. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us and reveal himself to us in fresh ways. Would you bow your heads in prayer? O servant of the living God, O faithful witness, O Savior, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And thank you that you have come to reveal our God to us. O Lord, we pray, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you once again. We pray these things for your glory and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, it is no surprise to hear that the book of Revelation is a hard book. So hard that many Christians would just keep away from reading it or meditating upon it. And in some way, it's hard because of its symbols. It's hard because of all the theories of the end times. So most Christians just stay away from it. Yet this book pronounces a unique blessing, unlike any other book in the Bible. Right at the very beginning, it says in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, 
and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Yes, we are blessed when we read it. We are blessed when we hear it. And we are blessed when we take to heart what is written in it. But what is this book about? What should we take to heart from this book on this Easter Sunday? Well, in a simple way, the book of Revelation is a book that gives us a vision of our world as seen from heaven. It's a book about our world as seen from heaven in the present time and in the future. It was written for Christians in actual churches, initially for the seven churches of Asia Minor. In this vision, the Apostle John is taken out of this world in order to see this world differently. He was taken out of this world in order to see its challenges in light of the end. To see the challenges of the churches in light of who truly is in control. One of the primary questions that lies behind all of the book of Revelation is who is truly in charge? Who truly rules? Who gets to make the last call? When all is done and finished, who will remain sovereign? Another way to understand the overall picture of the book of Revelation is this. It's, it's, a, it's a quote written by a New Testament uh, scholar by the name of Richard Bauckham. He said the following. It's a wonderful picture. I want you to picture this. The whole of Revelation could be regarded as a vision of the fulfillment of the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Revelation is all about. God is answering the prayer of our Lord through the book of Revelation. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, it's God's answer to the Lord's Prayer. Now, let me give a brief overview of the structure of this book to understand how God answers the Lord's Prayer. Chapter 1 is typically considered the introduction of this letter. And chapter 22, starting with verse 6 to the end of the chapter, is considered the conclusion. Now, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, read the introduction and the conclusion together. Read chapter 1 and then jump straight to chapter 22, verse 6, and finish off the book of Revelation to get a, a sense of, of the whole first. And then, then go back to chapter 2 and 3. These are short letters that Christ asks John to write to actual churches. Now, it's more appropriate to see these seven letters 
as a part of the introduction of Revelation. The, the seven letters of the book of Revelation give us a glimpse of how different each of these churches were, how different challenges they had, and how they dealt with them differently. While each of these churches received different instructions from the Lord and different promises, these promises were given to the same category of people in each of the seven churches. The promises of the Lord, even though they're different in each of the seven churches, they're given to the same category of people in each of the seven churches. To him who overcomes, I will give. That's how the seven letters end in each case. To him who overcomes, I will give. Francis means that the only ones who are eligible for Christ's promises are those who overcome. Oh, dear friend, if we take just this truth to heart this morning, Christ's promises are given only to those who overcome. Despite the diversity of each of these churches, God and Christ have the same hope for each he wants them to overcome, to be overcomers, which meant in the book of Revelation, which means for us to remain faithful to him and to his word to the very end in the midst of the circumstances we go through. Yes, each of the churches had different challenges, different circumstances, but in each case, God wants Christians to be overcomers despite the differences in their circumstances. But what is God providing? What is God giving to encourage and enable these Christians in these churches to be overcomers? Now, let, me, let me backtrack for a second. I want to make sure you understand what does it mean to be overcomers? I said it so quickly that I'm afraid that I'm, some of you may have just not recorded that. What does it mean in the book of Revelation to be overcomers? It means to remain faithful to him and his word to the very end, regardless of the circumstances. That's the meaning of being overcomers. And now the question is, well, what is God providing in order to encourage and enable these Christians to be overcomers? The answer is he's providing them with visions. He's providing them with visions from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, we have a sequence of visions that John sees of heaven, of this world seen from heaven. And these are supposed to be God's way to motivate these churches to be overcomers regardless of what they're going through. The recipients of this apocalyptic and prophetic letter were encouraged to discern God's purposes and then to respond to their circumstances in a way that was consistent with God's purposes. Now, I want to clarify something to you about this book of Revelation. Some of you may appreciate this illustration. The book of Revelation, if you still have a hard time understanding it or understanding what it's about, it's a bit like watching the Super Bowl. 
I know you're wondering, how in the world will I connect Super Bowl with the book of Revelation? Watch. It's like watching Super Bowl, but watching it not from the stadium, nor in real time, but watching its recording. Have you ever done that? Those of you who love football and you've ever had to miss watching a Super Bowl in real time, I know it's hard for you to do that. One of the things you probably told your friends was, don't tell me the score because I haven't seen it. Right? You say that because you want to enjoy the game not just the results. Revelation is in some way much like watching the recording of a Super Bowl game, only it's different in two ways. It is not a recording of what has taken place, but a recording of what will take place. And second of all, it's different because unlike your desire to know the results, not to know the results until the end, the book of Revelation tells you right up front who won, even though the end has not taken place. That's why the book of Revelation is like watching a Super Bowl game. Now you say, how is this possible? How can it be a recording of what has not yet taken place but will take place? How is it possible to tell me up front the results of something that has not yet taken place? Well, it's because, unlike the Super Bowl, God is the Alpha and the Omega. And He can see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and determine it as if it has taken place. And this is given to us in the first seven verses of the book of Revelation. Actually, this is given to us in the very first three descriptions about who Jesus is in the book of Revelation. Now, those who agree from the outset with what John writes in chapter 1 have no need to read the rest of this book. But it was because the first readers did not fully agree with John's salutation, or at least they may have agreed with it in their heads, but they did not agree with all the implications of what is written in the introduction of this book. Because they did not agree with all the implications for daily life and practice that John was impelled to write the whole letter. To be more precise, John's readers, the Christians of these seven churches, probably had a pretty good head knowledge about who God is and the fact that he's in control, the fact that he will reign in the end. But their life choices and preferences showed something else. This morning, we will not look at the whole letter of Revelation, but only at the introduction, at chapter 1, seeking to understand how is it that John presents the end from the beginning. You may find it surprising that God speaks only twice in this entire letter. The book of Revelation, God the Almighty, God the Father, 
speaks only twice in this book. The first one is in this passage we read in, chapter, in verse 8. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. And then the next time, the last time this shows up, God speaks uh, in the book of Revelation directly, is in chapter 21, verses 5 through 8. The Apostle John says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. End of quote. God has finished speaking. Outside of these two references, in Revelation 1.8 and Revelation 21.5-8, through 8, outside of these re- two references, the predominant focus in the book of Revelation is a testimony which God has entrusted to Christ to give to us. That's why the book of Revelation is a testimony we receive from Jesus Christ about who God is and about His plans with the world. But the center of of the book of Revelation is Christ, what God has done and will do through His Son. Thursday night we saw how the central figure throughout Revelation is the picture of the Lamb. This is a favorite way Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation. He is not just the Lion of the tribe of Judah, He is the Lamb. Friday night we saw that the moment of victory for the Lamb was not the moment when He will finish history at the end of the day, at the end of the age. The victory for the Lamb was not even in the moment of His resurrection. The victory for the Lamb was the moment He was slain. But the first proof that Christ was victorious on the cross that he had accomplished paying the debt of our sins, of taking upon himself the wrath of God, the first proof that Christ has been victorious over all that is the resurrection. And this comes so clearly in this first chapter of the book of Revelation. Let's look at three pictures that, we, that John paints for us of Jesus. Three pictures. Verse... One begins the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, namely Jesus, to show his servants what soon must take place. The first way John introduces us to Jesus is that he is the faithful witness. Look at verse 5. From Jesus Christ, when he says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God, the Almighty. And from the seven spirits, that's a possible 
connection, reference to the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. And then we have three descriptions of who Jesus is. The first one is, who is a faithful witness? Well, yes, Christ was entrusted the project, the responsibility to testify about God, to testify to us who God is and what he will do. Now, one of the big questions throughout the book of Revelation is, is this testimony really true? If God entrusted the testimony to his son, Jesus Christ, is this testimony really true? Now, if you're a Christian, you would say, yes, of course it is. But, but let's, let's think for a moment a little longer. There's so many religions in this world, and all of them seem to claim to pursue the truth. Is this testimony of Jesus really true? This is the major point of the end chapter, chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. In verse 6, uh, at, at, after the last vision that John has, we read, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. A few verses later, in 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. And in verse 20, we read, He who testifies these things says, I'm coming soon. The testimony that Jesus gives about God, about himself, about the world, must be believed, accepted, and trusted. Now, in the end, there's one undoubtable time and place when this will absolutely be acknowledged by every eye, by every one. It will be when he will come again. That will be the absolute moment when this testimony will have no shadow of a doubt that what it claimed, it will be true, or it has been true. But dear friend, the reason why the book of Revelation is written is to tell us that if you wait until that time to be convinced of the truthness of this testimony, it will be too late. It will be too late then to make up your mind. And that's why this book is written now, was written 2,000 years ago, before all these things will take place, to tell you it is coming. The first thing that John says about Jesus in verse 5, that he is a faithful witness. He is the one whom you can trust in what he testifies. His words are true. Now, we may be inclined to skip quickly over this description because we don't think we have a hard time with this description of Jesus as the faithful witness. But I want you to think, remember what this book is about. Jesus testifies that God is in ultimate control. That's the ultimate testimony that Jesus gives. Now, think for a moment about the Christians in the church of Smyrna. They're being killed because of the name of Jesus Christ. Think for a moment of the church, the Christians in the church of Philadelphia. They had all their opportunities and doors closed. The world was so against them that for whatever reason, it felt like the world was in control. It's a testimony of Jesus, 
about who's ultimate in control, true. Or think for other, about the other Christians in the other churches. Their life and practices didn't give a clear hint of who was in control. At the other extreme, from those who were persecuted, we have Christians in Laodicea who thought they had all they needed, riches, discernment, and fame in society. And Christ said to them that they were poor, blind, and naked. And those in Sardis, who had a reputation of being alive and thriving, and yet Christ says that they were dead. Is the testimony of Jesus true? And in between these two extremes, we have Christians in, in the churches of Ephesus who lost their first love. Then you have Christians in the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira who accepted false teachers and a promiscuous and worldly lifestyle. They have adopted the values of this world in their own congregation. To these churches, by what they boasted about, by how they related to the world, their practices, they were not convinced that God alone is in ultimate control. At least their life did not show it. They were putting their trust in what they had, in their practices, in their abilities to engage with society. They were more interested in being successful than faithful. So to each of these churches, Christ gives his testimony about God, about himself, about the world, about what is to come, and he says, I am the faithful witness. Friends, the book of Revelation is not written for non-Christians to try to convert them to Christianity. Remember, it was written to Christians who were members of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Actually, the way the book of Revelation ends is pretty shocking. It tells us that those who are committed to live life without God, to them the book of Revelation says something very shocking. He says, let him continue to do so. Look with me to Revelation 22, verse 11. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. I'm going to wait because some of you are turning there. I'm, I'm so glad you're turning the scriptures to check, to make sure that what I say is true, is from the Bible. I want you to do that. Check on me. Don't just take my words. Check and make sure it's in the Bible. Here's what God says. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Now, friends, the book of Revelation is not here to prove to us that God exists. It assumes that God exists. It is rather written for Christians who are wavering in their faith or playing the religious game and, and toying with compromising their witness through their life or practice. To them, to these, the rest of verse 11 says, let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Why? Because Christ is a faithful witness, and so the church should not only continue to trust Christ's testimony, but emulate it as well. The meaning of the phrase faithful witness applied to Christ has another echo which runs throughout this book. 
it points not only to the credibility of Christ's testimony, but also to the degree of his loyalty. This phrase, faithful witness, the next time it shows up in the book of Revelation is in chapter 2, verse 13, where Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, and here's what he says. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The faithful witness implies not just credibility, but a faithfulness even unto death. So that when Jesus is describing in chapter 1 verse 5 as a faithful witness, it means that Jesus proved his reliability, his integrity, and his loyalty to God by his death. As one commentator said, it was his death which validated his testimony to God's revelation. That's why the Easter shows up so early in the book of Revelation. Because what validates the testimony of Jesus about what he's telling us is that he has been the faithful witness even unto death. And it is this kind of faithful testimony, this kind of faithful witness, which Christ calls his churches to have. We saw Friday night that the cross is not just a victory of Christ over sin and death. It is also our victory if we belong to Christ. But let's look at the second picture of Christ. The firstborn from the dead, John says in verse 5. He's the firstborn from the dead. The second description points us in the most explicit way to the Easter story, to his death and to his resurrection. Now, to be the firstborn in Jewish culture was a big deal. It, um, it showed honor and entitlement to half of the father's inheritance. Now, this picture of being the firstborn, this title is applied to Jesus not because he was born or created, but because he's the first one living from among the dead. Now, you see, Jesus was alive even prior to his life on earth. But this is the first time he's alive from among the dead. There's something happen, happened in the Easter event that qualifies Jesus. He was, he was alive forever and ever in eternity past. But something happened in the Easter story that now qualifies Jesus for this title, the firstborn from among the dead. Remember that at the end of the book of Revelation, God said, Behold, I am making everything new. Well, Christ is the inaugurator, the first one of the new creation that God promised at the end of time. He's the inaugurator of that new creation by the means of his crucifixion, resurrection from the dead. Friends, Unlike us, Christ did not have to die. We do. All of us are subject to die. Unlike us, Christ did not have to die. And yet he became part of this world. He took upon himself the death we deserved, and he did so on a cross as a symbol of being cursed by God. But Christ took upon himself the wrath of God against our rebellion and gave us instead his righteousness. 
He came, as, as one person said, he came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. But in his resurrection, he became the firstborn from among the dead. No one, no one, no one has the privilege of having this title. Christ alone is the first one. Now, God's first creation, remember how he did it? He created this world from nothing. He spoke it into being. And he commanded us to grow and multiply. But the Bible tells us that God will bring about a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, and God will dwell unhindered with his new creation. But unlike his first creation, this new creation will be brought about by bringing the dead to life, to a new life, with new resurrected bodies. And this is possible because of the res resurrection of Jesus. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is a proof that God is serious in his promise of making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus is like the down payment to tell us what I'm talking about is serious. I am making all things new, and the resurrection of Jesus does it, proves it. The resurrection of Jesus is so crucial in the book of Revelation that when Christ describes himself in verse 18 to John, he uses five phrases. In, in verse 5, John describes Jesus to us. He's describing Jesus to these churches. But in verse 18, Jesus himself describes himself to John. Five phrases. And it's amazing that of the five phrases, the three in the middle refer to Easter. Three of the five phrases refer explicitly to Easter. The first phrase is, I was the first, I am the first and the last. That's not a clear, such a clear idea about Easter. Next, the second phrase, I am the living one. Third phrase, I was dead. Fourth phrase, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Fifthly, I hold the keys of death and hates. Friends, for Jesus to refer to the Easter event in three of these five phrases is somewhat surprising. Remember, this time Jesus reveals himself to John, the apostle. He's not an atheist. He's a beloved disciple. He saw Jesus. He was the one who ran with Peter to the tomb. to get proof that Jesus is alive. It is to this John that Jesus, when he describes himself, he uses five, three of the five phrases to remind him of the Easter. Did John forget? No. There are two things why, two reasons why Jesus feels the need to repeat what John already believed. On one side, because John had seen a picture of Jesus in heaven and he was so terrified that he fell down as dead. And Jesus calms his fear by revealing himself that he is the living one. But the second reason why these truths are, are, are brought out is because these are the most important part of the testimony of Jesus. 
He was dead, and he's alive. They are the center of that testimony. The events of the book of Revelation can unfold only because of the Easter event. That's why, dear friends, we can look at death with no fear because the resurrection of Jesus is just the first one from among the dead. That's why when we sit in front of a casket of a dear friend or family member that we know they have known Christ, we mourn, but we mourn with hope, looking forward to the morning of the resurrection. Yes, Christ is a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Now, thirdly and lastly, Christ is the ruler. We have seen on Friday the victory of the Lamb was accomplished not just in the resurrection, but actually in his death. The victory of Christ began in the moment of his greatest obedience, his submission to the Father's will, even to the point of death. It's because Christ exercised the deepest and highest kind of submission to God that God has made Christ the ruler, the highest ruler of all creation. That's why the third way John describes Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who Jesus is, the ruler of the kings of the earth. But then if we go, go on and read in verse 17, Remember the first phrase Jesus used to describe himself is, I am the first and the last? Well, that phrase shows up in the Old Testament only twice in the book of Isaiah. Our brother Carl read it earlier in, verse, in chapter 44, verse 6, and in, verse, in chapter 48, verse 12. In chapter 44, here's what God says about himself. This is God, the Almighty. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And in Isaiah 48, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Now, in the Old Testament, the point of these verses was to show that God is the only one in the highest charge of all creation, of everything. That's the point of these verses in the book of Isaiah. Because he's a creator of all things and sovereign of all history, and he knows the beginning from the end, no one is above him in charge. That's why in the book of Revelation, when the only two times when God speaks directly, he's using these phrases. Now for Christ to describe himself also with this title, is to say that he has received the same status and sovereign control as God himself. No wonder that when John sees the throne of God in chapter 4, then he immediately in chapter 5, he sees the Lamb of God at the center of the throne because Jesus is sovereign over all creation. But in chapter 1, Jesus tells us that his sovereign control is not only over the kings of the earth, not only over all of history, but in verse 18, the way he ends his self-description, he says, and I hold the keys of death and hates. Friends, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he tells us that the wages of sin is death. The entire creation is destined to death and destruction. 
Yet Christ holds the keys of death and hates. You know why? Because he walked through those doors. And he walked through those doors victorious. It's like he walked through the door, and on his way out, he grabbed the key and put it in his pocket. He holds the death and the hate in his hands. That's the, the incredible measure of his sovereign control. Oh, dear friends, because he walked through that door, he can redeem us. If we only turn to him from our rebellion and trust in him and his sacrifice for us. Oh, dear friend, perhaps you came to church this morning because it's Easter. And you do not have the assurance that you're made right with God. Let me ask you, what will you say when you will see Christ? Do you think you can tell him how good of a life you've lived? Some of you this morning might think that you can tell him that. Do you think you can tell him that you just deserve to be forgiven? Some of you this morning might have that impression. Friends, if the Apostle John, when he saw Jesus, fell down as dead, do you think you have a better chance to make a case for yourself in his presence? We have no chance on our own. Our only hope on that moment will be our faith in Christ's sacrifice for us. But it's only those who, while in this life, have turned away from their rebellion and ignorance of Christ and have turned to Christ by faith and repentance, only they can have the confidence and the assurance of standing before Christ and not be condemned. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel that is being brought to you on this Easter morning. And this news can be yours if you too would only respond to Christ. Believe what He has done for you and turn away from your life of sin and ignorance. If this is your desire, just tell God right now where you are. Ask Christ to come into your life and take over. Ask him to reign over you. He is sovereign over all creation, and he wants to be sovereign over your life. Friends, if this is your desire, ask him. Submit to him in faith and repentance. If this is what, uh, something that you'd want to do this morning, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. No wonder that John burst into a hymn of praise, into a doxology over what Christ has accomplished for us. Look at verse 7. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Friends, everything that God has done for us in Christ, everything that Christ has done for us can be summarized in this one simple, short phrase. Because he loves us. To him who loves us. It is because of his love for us that he drank the cup of wrath, which we deserve, but he took upon himself. 
Friends, a cross was the most powerful moment in history because through the blood of Christ, the greatest liberation took place. My liberation, your liberation, the liberation of all those who trust in Christ and turn to Him. That's why John can burst into a doxology of praising Christ for His love, for His redemption, for His new reign and newly formed kingdom. But you know what else John says? Look, look, He's coming with the clouds. This introduction of the picture of Jesus closes with a promise of His second coming. And notice how universal and certain His visible coming will be. He says, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced him. Friends, John cannot talk even about his second coming without referring back to the Easter event. That's how pervasive Easter is. Even those who pierced him will see him because he's coming. I want to close to you this morning with the words of Spurgeon. He who thinks lightly of the Savior thinks so much less of the evil of sin. And consequently, he becomes callous as to the past, careless as to the present, and venturesome as to the future. He thinks little of the punishment due to sin because he has small notions of the atonement made for sin. Gratitude is weak when favors are undervalued. He serves little who loves little, and he loves little who has no sense of having been greatly loved. Let your thoughts of Christ be high, and let your delight in him be high too. The most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord that they are humbled and filled with holy awe and even with dread and alarm. The reverence which is commendable is pushed by the infirmity of our nature into a fear which is excessive, and that which is good in itself is made deadly to us. So prone are we to err on the side of the earth. Let this be a comfort to thee, thou who are now lying as dead before the risen Lord. He comes near to thee, not to kill thee, but to revive thee. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come to the Apostle John. And when he was so struck, he was so amazed and afraid that he fell down as dead, you came down to revive him because you are alive. Oh, Lord, we pray that we too, who have been dead in our sins, and some of us who are still dead in their sins, we too come to you and ask for your hand to touch us so we too may continue to experience the life of eternity. In his name we pray. Amen. Let us continue to worship this morning as we have heard of the glory.